Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 16. I am going to miss saying that. Romans chapter 16, we'll be looking at verses 21 through 27, the final verses in this amazing epistle from Paul. Romans 16, and just listen as I read beginning in verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sassipater, and who's my kinsman. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me, and the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Quartus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for a long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. October 24th, 2012, we began a verse-by-verse study of Paul's theological magnum opus, the book of Romans. And now five years and one week to the day later, we come to the end of our study of this book. When we began this study, there was no way we could have anticipated that the final uh, study in this uh, series in Romans would land on the Sunday which the church at large, at least the Protestant church, is celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Yet here we are on this very Sunday. I love God's providence. It was on October 31st, 1517, that Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 complaints, his 95 protests, his 95 theses against the theological abuses of the Roman Catholic Church to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg. And that became the biblical catalyst for the ensuing Reformation. Why a biblical catalyst? Because over the next few years, he would be consternated with his own conscience on being guilty before God and needing desperately to sense and to feel relief from his sin, which he could never find through monastic efforts. And it was his study of the book of Romans that launched his own spiritual pilgrimage and I think in essence really was the first domino that laid down the theological tracks of the Reformation. And here we are, 500 years later, concluding the book that he began studying that changed his life. 
don't know if you remember, when we first began this study, we looked at an illustration. Remember what the illustration was? Of a watch, an automatic watch. I love automatic watches. They are one of the most intriguing things to me. An automatic watch is one that uses kinetic energy. It's, it, um, it's a self-winding watch. If you open up an automatic watch, it has springs and gears and screws and hinges and brackets. Yet with all that detail, in the end, a watch simply tells time. And we said Romans could be compared to a watch like that. It has so many complications, so many interconnected parts, but like that watch in the end, it just tells us the time and Romans in the end just tells us how to be saved. We're in chapter 16 after a long, long study of every single verse. I, I just have to tell you, I got a text from, from my son Luke this morning. It was kind of humorous. He said... Uh, he says a few things, and he says, I wish I could be there. He says, thanks for Romans, and thanks for not skipping all the hard stuff. <laughs> Can I just tell you how many times I was tempted to say, Lord, please bring the rapture this week. Just this week before Romans 9, or 10, or 8, or 11, or 13, or 14, or 15, or 1, or 2, or 3. We could go on and on. So let's review the book of Romans in just a few seconds. Are you Ready? In chapter 1, we met the gospel. The gospel is for everyone. It's for the Jew first and also the Gentiles, the Greeks. But the Gentiles suppressed the truth of God in their unrighteousness. In chapter 2, we find out the Jews had a judgmental view of those Gentiles, and yet they too faced the wrath of God because they're not true believers, only superstitious and proud, having been given the blessings of Judaism without taking advantage of them. Chapter 3, we found that there was none who seeks God, none who is righteous, not even one. And also that salvation comes by grace through faith. Chapter 4, we found out that Abraham was a, was a great example, the greatest example of justification by faith alone. In chapter 5, God's love is fundamentally different than ours Sin came through Adam and salvation comes through Christ as our representatives. representatives. Chapter 6, to know Christ is to pursue righteousness, is to be sanctified, is to be holy. Chapter 7, it's a battle to live that righteous life before Christ. Chapter 8, we've been adopted by God and God is in absolute control of all things for the good of his children from eternity past to eternity future. Chapter 9, God's election of Israel is still in effect and God has absolute sovereignty over the souls of men just as he has absolute sovereignty over the nation of Israel and all nations. Chapter 10, Jesus Christ from Nazareth is the only Savior for both Jews and Gentiles. In chapter 11, God is not finished with the nation of Israel. He will one day save a redeemed, a saved, a Christian group of Jews who, through whom he will Fulfill all of his promises, even the land promises in, in the Old Testament. Chapter 12, when the gospel is believed, it has radical, demonstrable implications for the Christian's life and all of his and her relationships. 
Chapter 13, the work of Christ in a believer makes him or her a model citizen in our culture before our government. And it rules us by love until the Lord returns. Chapter 14, in those relationships, it involves Christian maturity that compels a believer to be wise and considerate in decisions about gray areas and issues of conscience. Chapter 15, he resolves that topic Telling us believers ought to demonstrate their love toward one another by deferring to each other in Christian love and liberty and not judging one another. And then Paul, in in the middle of chapter 15, begins his postscript, his PS, talking about faithful ministry, faithful missions, and how a church cares for missionaries by prayer and care. Then he comes to the final chapter in which we find the commendation of Phoebe, an amazing lady who no doubt brought this this epistle from the home of Gaius in Corinth and took it to Rome. A series of personal greetings and an unbelievable, incredible doxology that we'll look at in a moment. I just see Paul in Corinth. He's coming to the end. And he puts a period on the final sentence of the letter scroll to Roman, to the Romans rolls up the scroll, hands it to Phoebe, and the entourage with her begins to go across the sea to Italy to deliver this to the Christians there in Italy. I think he could hardly wait to get the period punctuated to get this off his heart onto paper and into their hearts and we... We have a copy. We have a copy. So I worked long and hard on our final outline in our study. Are you ready for this? We're going to look at Paul's final two points to the Romans. Paul's final two points to the Romans. The first is this. The gospel always involves partners in ministry. The gospel always involves partners partners in ministry. This is his final greeting. This is not him greeting others. It's, it's those who are with him sending their greetings. Verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. Timothy was Paul's personal disciple. He was special to Paul. He traveled extensively with Paul. He joined him on a second missionary journey, and he would end up being left at Ephesus to pastor the church that Paul planted in Ephesus. And when Paul wrote 1 and 2 Timothy, those were the pastoral epistles to give direction to the church leaders, Timothy in particular as the pastor, on how to lead the church well. Two of his last three letters, at least that we have extant, are to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1, 2, Paul calls him my true son in the faith. And in 2 Timothy 1, he calls him my dear son I think it's fair to say that no one was closer to the Apostle Paul on this earth than was Timothy. Timothy was there with him. And it's almost as if you were going on a trip or you were writing something and you're with someone and you say, hey, tell him I said hi too. It's exactly what Timothy's doing here. He almost interrupts Paul and says, greet them for me too. He also gives a a few more men, Lucius, Jason, and... Sasa Pater and 
These were fellow countrymen or Jews. They were with Paul too. They added their greetings. Lucius probably should not be confused with the Lucius of Cyrene mentioned in Acts chapter 13 verse 1. That's a longer study. We don't have time to delve into now. Some scholars argue that he may actually have been Luke. And that was a different name that he went by. We don't have any indication for sure on that. Jason, who was Paul's host at Thessalonica in Acts 17, is there with him. And it's possible that Sasapater was the Sopater, the son of Pyrrhus, who was with Paul as far as Asia on his journey to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20. These were men who were traveling with him, who were fellow missionaries. He was partnering with them. Erastus and Quartus. We know nothing of these men except what's told us here in verse 23. Quartus was a brother, a Christian, and Erastus was the city treasurer. A guy in government came to Christ and was there with Paul and likely was a partner with him there in Corinth and maybe traveled with them as he began going back to Jerusalem before heading to Rome. Now, in verse 22, it's important that you understand what's being said and what's not being said here. I, Tertius, who write this letter, stop the press. <laughs> who wrote Romans? Did Paul or did Tertius? And the answer is Paul. And Tertius was an amanuensis. He was one who was receiving the dictation. Now, why was that important? Just look at the practicality of it for a moment. Scrolls and paper and parchment were extremely expensive. To write a letter of this length and nature would have been a major undertaking. There was no delete button. If you made a mistake, you wasted paper. These were men who were professionals at dictation. And he wrote, he was his secretary for Paul. And a believer. He could have just hired an evangelist, but this is one who knew Paul and was a believer and sends his greetings as well in the Lord. I'm I'm encouraged by that. This professional had been won to faith in Christ by someone, maybe even Paul, there in Corinth. These final greetings indicate that Paul, this is important, was not alone in his ministry. In fact, you can study the book of Acts, you'll never find Paul ministering or traveling alone. It involved a cadre of gospel workers. It always involves ministers in ministry. Same for us. Gospel always involves partners, present or absent, who are involved in the work, the prayer, the care of ministers and missionaries. And he sums up all the greetings of himself and his friends in verse 24 when he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, so be it, amen. What's the best thing he could wish for these Roman believers that they would understand, live in, and enjoy, experience the grace, not just of God. He uses that term elsewhere. He says the grace of our Lord who is Jesus Christ and it be with you all, And then he puts an exclamation point. So be it. Amen. His well-wishing is an extension of the grace that comes in knowing Jesus, who he's explained as the object of the gospel for now 16 chapters. 
This is the first of two amen statements he's going to give in these final three verses. So be it, he says, that the grace of Jesus would be extended to those of you who believe in Christ in Rome. Partners in ministry. It was a community effort. Which brings him to his final doxology. His second concluding point is the perfect conclusion to the book of Romans. Number two, the gospel always results in praise or glory being given to God. He starts his final sentence. It's been said that last words are lasting words. You know what it's like to struggle to finish a letter and what do you say at the end? What is your final thought? What is your PS? What do you say before you close up the envelope and and send it? My suspicion is Paul had begun thinking about these last three verses when he began the first verses because the parallels between the two sections are obvious. Remember how he began the book. Chapter 1, verse 1, he says at the end of verse 1, the gospel of God, chapter 2, he talks about the fact that it's connected to the Old Testament, which he'll say in a minute. The gospel of God... Verse 3 says, concerning his son. In other words, the good news of God that he's going to talk about for 16 chapters is all about his son. It's about Christ. It's about the person of God in flesh. In other words, God has sent good news. And God's good news is not a plan of salvation, but the person of salvation. Not a way to live, but a person to live for. God's good news is Jesus. And all, this is what he's been saying for 16 chapters, all the glory for our salvation should go to God because of his son who he sent to save sinners from their own sin, hell itself, the influence of the devil, and ultimately from the wrath of God. Now, why does the gospel result in praise to God? He gives us three reasons under this. Three reasons under this. First of all, because he establishes the believer in the gospel. This is is really a summary of what he's taught for the last 16 chapters. He says, Now to him who is able... To establish you according to my gospel and according to the preaching of Jesus Christ. The first thing to notice is how involved this last sentence is. If you're a diagrammer, if you, if you like diagramming sentences in English, and if you like seeing like where the subject goes, where the verb goes, where the predicate goes, uh, or is this a predicate adjective, a predicate nominative, where the, the prepositions go, where the adjectives and adverbs go, where they line up in, in diagrams. Just have some fun this afternoon. Go diagram this sentence. Just listen to it. Listen to all the asides. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Christ Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience to faith. To the only wise God, 
Just take a deep breath, though. Here's what he's saying. Now to him, verse 25, look at verse 27. The only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. What he's saying is, to him be glory forever. That's the sentence. Everything in between is description. Now to him be glory forever. In the middle of this are all these descriptors of what God does to bring himself praise, to bring himself glory in the plan of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person who redeems us from sin. In this sentence, Paul talks about what God has done that is so wise that it makes him deserving of glory. Look first, he establishes the believer. He establishes the believer. Sterizo, it means to establish. It means to make firm, cause someone to be stable, to make fast, to hold fast. Just what Aaron let us in earlier. He will hold us fast. This makes us able to hold fast onto him. It establishes, it re- establishes this. It refers to being mentally settled, firmly rooted in the truth of the gospel. Let me say it another way. When God establishes us in the gospel, it makes the believer certain, confident, settled, and content. Think about that. Certain, confident, settled, and content. And I think that's the trajectory and the aim and the goal of understanding, reading, and studying the book of Romans. Now, don't be confused when Paul says, my gospel. There's a lot of people who've been very uh, put out by that. I remember Bob and I talking to someone uh, in recent years who said that Paul's gospel was actually different than Jesus' gospel. It was different than John's gospel. It was different than the writers of the Hebrews' gospel. It was different than Peter's gospel. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's actually personalizing it. We should all say, my good news my evangelium, my, my, my good news. That's so precious, it's personal with me. It's my good news. I think you stitch that back to Romans 10 where he gives his own testimony and says, I'm amazed that he would choose someone like me. It wasn't his own or gospel or even his personal view of the gospel. It was the same gospel preached by the other apostles and Jesus himself. What's significant, though, is what comes next. He puts the central focus of God's good news in the preaching or presentation, the proclamation of Jesus Christ. He is unmistakably Christ-centric. The preaching of Jesus Christ. Listen, I love doctrine. I love studying theology. But anytime that's divorced from the living, resurrected Savior, we're going to get in trouble. Theology divorced from the person of Christ won't keep you morally pure and holy. It's just a study of, of theory. It has to be the person of Christ. Paul began saying the gospel of God concerns his son. He ends and says it's about the preaching of the person of Christ. His message and ours is Jesus from beginning to end, what he has done for us in his life and death 
and resurrection. Remember what he told the Corinthians? We don't preach ourselves, but we preach Christ as Lord. We preach ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, the one who created the world, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give, listen, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, that's what he's ending with, in the face of Christ. I think if Paul were here putting a, period or an exclamation point on Romans for uh, uh, this morning for us, he would personally say, remember Christ. Remember Jesus. This truth about Christ is intended to establish us, to make us settled and confident and sure and steadfast. I think it's why Paul has written the book of Romans, to show us how Christ makes us certain about what we believe, makes us settled in what believe, what we believe, makes us confident in what we believe, and ultimately makes us content and established in what and why we believe. So we've come to the end, but let me ask you, have you been established in the gospel? Are you settled and confident and sure and steadfast? Oh, we all have doubts, but does the trajectory of your life indicate that you have what we saying earlier, have held fast to Christ. Paul says that's the intended result of the gospel. There's a second reason the gospel results in praise to God, right in the middle of verse 25, because he fulfills his word in the gospel. God is a promise maker and God is a promise keeper. He fulfills his word in the gospel. Look in the middle of verse 25. According to the revealing, the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. Now don't get hung up on this word mystery. It's not like an Agatha Christie novel. It just means something that was previously unrevealed and God pulls the curtain back and shows us what's, the, what's behind the curtain of his redemptive plan that began in, in the book of Genesis prophesied by the prophets. He says it was kept secret for long ages past. This just means it was previously unknown, unrevealed. And now it's comprehended God's love, God's plan, God's redemptive purposes in Christ, in the good news that's the gospel. He's indicating, Paul is, that the Romans, and I think also we, ought to be overwhelmed by the privilege and blessing of living on this side of the cross. And for you and me, it's on this side of the canonization of the scriptures. We own a copy of God's complete and finished revelation. We should be ever ready then to give God praise for the fact that we have the whole message. We're not searching we're not waiting. Remember Simeon? God said to him, you won't die until you see the constellation of Israel coming. And in comes Mary and Joseph to have Jesus dedicated in the temple. He takes the baby and he says, now I can die. I've held him in my arms and now I can die. How much more privileged are you and me that we have the entire word of the living God 
Can I blow your mind for a second? Paul didn't have what you have. He didn't carry around 66 scrolls. You have a book. You probably have the Word of God on your phone. What privileged people we are. It's previously unrevealed, and we have the revelation. Verse 26, now, in our world, in our day, it's manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, Paul is ending where he began. He said in verse 2 of chapter 1, God promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning Jesus Christ. And this is exactly where he ends. That the Old Testament should not be divorced from the New. That the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New. That they go hand in glove. They are not two separate documents, but one stitched by the blood of Christ himself together. God promised and God commanded that Jesus be received as his son and as the Messiah. Read Isaiah 53. No other person has ever qualified to be Isaiah 53's fulfillment than Jesus of Nazareth. The scriptures, specifically your Bible, points the readers, points us to the central command. He says, by the commandment of the eternal God. The command is what? To take by faith, the next verse, the nations should believe, take by faith, the good news of Jesus. Remember Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding or declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. That's the commandment. We are commanded to understand who Jesus is and respond to him as Savior and Lord. In other words, the aim and purpose of God in revealing the gospel to the world is now to believe, which brings us to the third reason the gospel results in praise to God because he saves sinners through the gospel. He saves sinners through the gospel. Look in the middle of 26. This mystery now revealed, promised to the prophets, commanded by God, this mystery has been made known to all nations. Now this has gotten some people confused. Had the Great Commission been fulfilled by the writing of the book of Romans? Go into all the world, all the nations, and preach the gospel. Had that happened by this time? Well, Paul, uh, earlier in chapter 15, told us that he planned on going back to Jerusalem and wanted to go to Spain. Of course it hadn't. So what does he mean? It's been made known to all the nations. It means that the mystery is no longer held in secret. It's now open for anyone and everyone who will hear and who will receive. Which brings us back to Romans 10. How shall anyone hear unless a preacher sent? It's been revealed. It's been made known. There are no more mysteries in God's economy. No more mysteries in God's revelation. And what does that lead to? Leading to obedience of faith. It's a command to believe what God has done to provide salvation for the sinner. The intended target of the gospel, this is so important to us as, as those who want to be a missions outreach church and, and reaching our community and reaching our states and reaching our nation. He says, 
It's to all nations. Red and yellow, black and white. What does it say? They are precious in his sight. All nations. To believe and cherish the gospel, I think, is to be passionate and involved in outreach, evangelism, and missions. It's of the nations. That's the message of the book of Romans. It's by faith, to grasp what God has done by faith, by believing that he has made salvation possible for us, and we cannot contribute anything ourselves. Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith, made right by faith, apart from the works of the law. It's the doctrine we call sola fide. It is the central doctrine in the book of Romans. It's the one that set the world on fire in the book of in, in the period of, of the Reformation. It's why God receives all glory in salvation. Listen, we gotta go back to the first half of Romans and be freshly amazed that God has said, You are damned and doomed and need salvation. And you can't do anything about it. But that's okay because God has done everything for you. And the most amazing part of grace that we sing about all the time is that His grace gives us what we most need and can never earn ourselves righteousness right standing with God, forgiveness of sins, and get this, we do nothing to get that except believe and receive. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. We're called to believe what God has done in his son on the cross through the resurrection the good news is that we, de- we cannot place any trust or confidence in our own works, our own selfish attempts to please God. God has never one time in his existence elbowed a member of the Trinity or the angels and said, finally, someone gets it. Now they know how to please me. No, only a son. Romans 10, verse eight, what does it say? The word is near to you in your mouth and your heart the word of faith, which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart, the person believes, resulting in righteousness. There's the doctrine of imputation, sola fide, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Back to the grammar of the concluding sentence. Verse 25, now to him, who is him? We find out a little bit more about him in verse 27. He's not only God, he's the only wise God. 
Paul told the Corinthians that the, the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. It doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive. It's illogical. Who would invent a salvation by which a holy God would send his holy begotten son into the world to die a, a ruthless, brutal, cruel death for the sins of his enemies and save them in love? The only wise God would. There is no other religion in the world that's like that. We've studied over and over. There's only two religions in the world. The religion of human achievement, which is every religion in the world, which tries to do better and try harder to please God. And the religion of divine accomplishment, which is the gospel, what God has done for us in the good news that Jesus died for us, rose from the dead, and offers us salvation. If we will believe that he's done that for us. unsearchable wisdom that God gave us his son to provide sinners rebels salvation from themselves from Satan from sin and from hell and from God's own wrath why why so that through Jesus Christ, God would come to have glory, credit, praise forever. Remember Romans eleven thirty three. 33? Oh, the depth. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the, here it is, wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment unfathomable. You can't get to the bottom of his ways. Sixteen chapters, 433 verses, 9,447 words. What do you say after all that, Paul? You know what you say? Amen. So be it. In the preface to his commentary on Romans, Martin Luther wrote this. Romans is the chief book of the New Testament. The purest gospel. It deserves not only to be known word for word by every Christian, but is to be the subject of his meditation day by day and the daily bread of his soul. I love this. The more time one spends on it, the more precious it becomes and the better it appears. So finishing our sermon series in the book of Romans doesn't mean finishing our study of the book of Romans. I hope it only begins. My prayer for us, I was praying this this morning very early, is that these past five years is merely an encouragement and an invitation to search this book out all the more. To know it, to own it, to memorize parts or all of it. 
Why? Now to him, the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen.